Well, thanks so much, Dan, for uh, welcoming us to this lovely space. Uh, for those of you online, we've got uh, 20 people here, appropriately socially distanced, sipping away on wine. Uh, and uh, like Dan, I want to acknowledge the uh, Indigenous people on whose lands we're meeting tonight. Uh, Dara Nuna, Dara Nunawal, Yongu, Nalamanyan, Dunimanyan, Nanawalwari, Darawari, Dindi, Wangaralinjinyan and acknowledge any Indigenous people in the room and on the live stream tonight. Uh, we're here tonight talking about uh, the way Tanya spent her COVID lockdown, uh, which is extraordinarily productive, uh, as you would expect, uh, of somebody who is productive and optimistic like Tanya Plibersek. Uh, I learned some, uh, some new things uh, reading the book uh, about uh, Sally McManus's love of Taekwondo, uh, Wayne Swan's love of surfing, uh, and the fact that uh, when Tanya first saw her Slovenian grandfather, uh, he was uh, working with a horse-drawn cart uh, and a hand wheat scythe. But the other thing that strikes you about uh, the book is the sense that it opens up the space of possibility. And I wanted to start by just quoting some words from the intro introduction uh, written by Tanya. A year ago, people would have told you it was impossible for school children to shift overnight to online learning, impossible for banks to offer mortgage holidays, impossible to double unemployment benefits, impossible to house rough sleepers or put a hold on ev evictions, impossible to offer wage subsidies. So my opening question to you, Tanya, is has COVID expanded the space of the possible in Australia? I, I absolutely think it has, Andrew. And I want to join you in acknowledging the traditional owners of the land that we're meeting on today. And uh, I also want to say how wonderful it is to be here and thank Muse for hosting us and to acknowledge your extraordinary efforts as an author and Chris Wallace's uh, fantastic um, recent book. And we've probably got a few other authors in the audience too. Um, but Andrew, I really think if this period has taught us uh, anything, it's taught us that a whole lot of things that we have been previously told are impossible, are in fact possible and achievable and even desirable. And one of the biggest areas I think uh, we need to focus on now is we've, got, we've gone from a, a government that campaigned on a debt and deficit disaster when we had a $200 billion um, national debt, they're now headed to $1.7 trillion of national debt. But what do we get for that? What do, we, what do we achieve as a nation for that investment? I think that's the really important question for us. Um, all the things that we thought were impossible, like housing rough sleepers, uh, like increasing unemployment benefits, should be part of what this nation achieves for that um, that debt. There's no question that we should be going into debt at a time like this. Um, interest rates are low. Uh, we need the stimulus in our economy. We need demand and confidence. All of that's true. I'm not being critical of the government for uh, seeing increased debt. What I'm saying is we need to think very carefully about what that debt buys for the long term. One of the key ideas in the book is uh, full employment and in a context in which uh, the government has said that it is uh, uh, aspiring for 6% unemployment, uh, you have a, a chapter by Stephen Kukoulos that uh, starts with a quote from another Liberal Treasurer, Billy Snedden, in August 1972 <laughs> yeah, from now his budget speech. Now there's a sentence you didn't ever think you'd hear. Stephen Kukoulos 
quotes Billy Snedden saying. <laughs> and it's a corker of a quote. Uh, Billy Snedden says, an unemployment rate of 2% is too high for us and we are determined to reduce it. Yeah. So Tanya, why is full employment important? Well, I think the story of full employment in Australia is a really important story to tell. Um, after so the Great Depression, almost without drawing breath, people went into the Second World War. Uh, the Australian population sacrificed so much during the Second World War. People went off to fight, many died. The ones who were left at home lost family members. They lived with uh, all sorts of restrictions, um, uh, even if they were uh, in Australia. And the promise, the promise that the Australian government made to its population was we will achieve full employment and will increase rates of home ownership. And I think at a time like this, when we are asking a lot of people, and for the most part, people have been disciplined, they have been kind, they have been prepared to uh, do things that are uncomfortable or difficult to keep other people safe, what, what is the payoff? The payoff for the Australian population has to be more jobs, secure jobs, and increasing wages. Even before COVID-19, wages were flatlining. They had been flatlining for too long. Um, that affected aggregate demand in our economy. It affected people's confidence. It affected um, their, their feelings of well-being. If you are working full-time and, you, and you're racing just to keep up with the bills as they're coming in, or you're working full-time and, and you, you've slipped into the ranks of the working poor, that's not good enough for a country like Australia. That was happening before COVID-19. And part of the aim of this book is, is to capture that idea that progressives around the world are talking about at the moment. How do we build back better? Uh, how do we make sure that what we snap back to, uh, the Prime Minister keeps talking about snapping back, how do we make sure that what we snap back to is better than where we were, which was um, high unemployment, high underemployment, high insecurity in the workforce, low wages growth, low confidence uh, from uh, consumers, low confidence from business. I think um, can I, sorry, can I just finish this one on full employment? And, and I think full employment is a really important way of, uh, of focusing our, our minds and our efforts, our policy direction. We need to make jobs uh, the most important thing that the government and the opposition agree Australia should be focused on right now. We, we, um, we, we can't achieve, uh, we can't achieve confidence and productivity growth and any of the other things that we want to see in the economy unless we're focusing on jobs. Jo jobs is the whole story of the economy at the moment. How do we do it? I don't think it's impossible at all. We, we need to build things, make things, care for people and make sure that we've got decent jobs with good pay and conditions. So build things. The government's already talking about infrastructure. I would say that um, infrastructure investment's terrific, but we need to look a bit more broadly at what kind of infrastructure. We should, of course, be investing in social housing. We should be upgrading our schools, our TAFE colleges, our hospitals, th those public um, buildings that make life better for people. Uh, we need to be making things, and that means getting our energy policies right, if we're going to be, and Roscano writes about this, we can be a manufacturing superpower again if we get energy costs under control, which means renewables which are cheaper and cleaner and using those renewables to power a manufacturing recovery, but also using our research and development, our intellect, our ideas, our discovery to power that. 
um, caring for people. Like, how is it possible that we've got more than 100,000 people on a waiting list for home and community care who we know are eligible, they've been, they've been uh, assessed as eligible for home care. We've got 2.4 million people who are unemployed or want more hours of work, and we can't put those two things together. Look how nuts is that? That is because we are not prepared to pay for it, because our government is not prepared to pay for it. That's one example of the caring jobs. And we know for a million dollars that you invest in construction, you get 1.2 jobs. Uh, for a million dollars that you invest in, say, early childhood edu education and care or um, uh, disability support services uh, or uh, aged care or education more broadly, you get anywhere between sort of 8 and 13 jobs. You'll remember the figures much better than me, Andrew, because you're a little abacus. Um, <laughs> but not feral. But not feral. Don't make me jump here. A very, a very polite abacus. Um, and, and finally, when we're talking about jobs, it's not just more of the same insecure, low-paid work that we were shepherding people into before COVID-19 hit. Matthias Kuhlmann, who's off, you know, trying to win this OECD job, said in a moment of, of rare honesty, low wages are a deliberate part of our economic strategy. Uh, we can't keep expecting people not, not to see growth in their standard of living, to think that their kids are going to be worse off than they are. Even the Reserve Bank recognises that low wages growth is a real drag on our economy. So build things, make things, care for people, make sure those jobs are decent jobs with good pay and conditions. And while it's a book that looks forward, there's also a lot to look back to on the past example on, uh, in the case of full employment. Uh, you know, I think people often forget that that period, the couple of decades leading up to World War II, was a period where double-digit unemployment had become the norm. And then, uh, thanks to Canberra, uh, Coombs uh, sits, sits down with Curtin. They agree to do a white paper on full employment. And then they, they get it done. I mean, the transformation in the employment market is just phenomenal. It's amazing. And the, the Stuart McIntyre book about that period, Australia's Boldest Experiment, which is mm. probably on the shelves here somewhere, is just a, a, an absolutely brilliant account of mm. how they did it. Oops. We can do it. We can do it again. Uh, and one of the other points I think you, you touched on is worth fleshing out is uh, to the extent that wages are a function of the scarcity of, uh, of workers, uh, you're going to get wage growth uh, as, you, as you drive down, uh, down employment. If, uh, if workers are plentiful, if there's 20 people applying for every job, there's no incentive for the employer to, uh, to, to raise the wage. Uh, and there's often not an incentive for an employer to hire somebody who uh, might be uh, ethnic, from an ethnic minority, uh, who might, might have a disability. Uh, there's, uh, there's going to be more discrimination in a high unemployment market too, isn't there? And, and also, I think, Andrew, what we saw um, pre-COVID was every skills shortage was met with temporary skilled migration. And I'm, I, I think, like, you know, I'm a proud child of migrants. I, I'm, I'm absolutely supportive of a strong migration program to Australia, but you can't meet every skills shortage. Skills shortages that have been around for years uh, simply by increasing temporary skilled migration. And so areas like the caring professions, aged care, childcare, nursing, why are so many of the jobs filled 
with temporary skilled migrants because we don't pay them enough. We don't, they're, we don't pay, it's a whole bunch of women's jobs in particular that we don't pay enough. One of the things that strikes me about the overall philosophy of the book is that it seems very attuned to the crisis itself. Uh, 2020 has been a, a human capital crisis and a lot of your book is about uh, rebuilding with hum human capital. Uh, there's not the sort of focus that you get from the government, which is that this has been a huge hit to skills and education, um, so let's invest in, in concrete. Uh, you've got a, a Does that focus on human capital, do you think, come in part from the, the portfolios you've held in, uh, uh, in, in government and opposi in opposition? I, I feel as though you're sh we're, we're, we're a product of the jobs we do, in some sense. I think we, uh, you know, uh, I'm on familiar territory if I'm writing about health or education or, you know, human services and so on. You're right, because I've held a lot of those portfolios over the years. But you sort of choose the portfolios that reflect your interests as well to a certain mm. degree. And I chose education because uh, when I was the deputy leader and I had my choice of portfolios, um, I chose education because it's one of the best ways we can make a difference to the lives of an individual person and it's one of the best investments we can make for our national economy for productivity uh, in particular and um, I, I, I think uh, but I think it's important actually to um, to kind of walk and chew gum at the same time like I don't think that we will meet all of our economic challenges uh, just by investing more in health and education. We do, uh, we do need to um, make our cities, our regions more efficient and more livable. It's a good thing to invest more in public transport. We might need to think a little bit more carefully about what that infrastructure looks like now mm. because our cities and our suburbs have changed so dramatically with the discovery that people actually can work from home, that you don't need people commuting five days a week on trains from an outer suburb to a city location. Um, I don't think the, the sort of social investment and, uh, I don't know, harder stuff, um, I mean harder like that, uh, are mutually exclusive. I think they're complementary. Got the, your introductory uh, chapter in the book and then uh, a chapter on education itself and I want to draw you out on a, a few ideas there. Um, you, you mount a firm defence of, uh, of testing, pointing out that before my school uh, we didn't have a sense as to where socioeconomic disadvantage was, uh, nor a sense as to which schools were doing the best to, uh, to bring children who might have been starting a long way behind uh, actually in advance of other, other kids in similar schools. What do you think the, the right role of testing is in a really well-functioning education system? Um, I, I've got a lot of sympathy for people who say that testing for teachers is um, it's time-consuming and it's bureaucratic and the results come back sometimes weeks, sometimes months after the test and by that time the child's missed out or moved on. And I have a lot of sympathy for parents who say our kids are really stressed by testing. But I don't think, I don't think the answer to those problems is to 
get rid of all testing. I think it's to have a lighter touch, uh, lower stakes, uh, faster return type of testing. And I think it is really important to remember that before we had tests like NAPLAN, we didn't know whether whole schools or whole state systems were uh, failing their kids. And I know that's uncomfortable and difficult, but unless you're able to measure some of these things objectively, I think it's um, possible for, uh, for us to see what sadly we've seen in recent years, which is declining reading ability, declining ability in maths and science. Um, so I do think we need objective measures that we can, uh, we're, so that we can focus on the kids that we need to help more. Uh, and that includes allocating resources in a way that reflects need in our education system, which we said we would do, we pretended to do, mm. but we haven't yet done. And there's also the international testing where you offer a statistic which I found horrifying that Australia could be moving from uh, a previous situation where we were top five in the OECD for literacy and numeracy to being bottom five by yeah. 2030. I mean, if that was happening with our GDP, if the idea was Cancer we were going to move survival in, rates. Yeah, any of these numbers. Yeah. Now, but this, this would be a national crisis. But I don't feel as though the, the, the fact that every time the OECD comes to Australia to test Australian kids, they do a little bit worse than, than previously has grabbed the national national psyche and, and uh, suggested to people that there really is a, a looming crisis. Uh, uh, how, do, how do we get more focus on that? I don't know. <laughs> I, I find it amazing that... Um, look, I think part of the problem is that every time we talk about it, the, the, the media coverage of it is just straight out teacher bashing. And I don't want to be part of that. I don't yeah. think anybody wants to be part of that. Like you see the amazing job that schools did shifting almost overnight to remote learning and all these parents were sitting in their lounge rooms seeing what the teachers did every day and how complex and responsible the work is. I don't want to be part of saying it's, it's the fault of schools or teachers, but there is a problem when we've gone from top five to on track if we stay on this trajectory to bottom five. There is a problem with that and we need to find a constructive way of dealing with it and that includes better resourcing but it in also includes things like better initial teacher education. It is a real problem that marks continue to decline to get into teaching degrees at university and I, I hear teachers, I hear teachers and parents saying to bright kids don't do teaching, you are wasting your mark if you go and do a teaching course. Mm. That is heartbreaking. That's heartbreaking. Like it's some of the most important work that anybody can do in our community to, um, to see a smaller and smaller number of uh, people choosing, of the top achieving kids choosing teaching as a career. Uh, I think is a real problem. It, it sends a terrible signal about the importance of the work that universities keep accepting people with lower and lower ent entry standards. Uh, and um, 
I also think there's um, identifiable challenges both in initial teacher education and in continuing professional development. We know a lot about what works in the classroom mm. and we're not relying enough on the evidence uh, of, of what works. We're not supporting teachers to use that evidence in their day-to-day um, -day practice as much uh, as, as we ought to be. And that notion of uh, the value of teaching, I think, is reflected in the way in which uh, doctors will often talk about their training, uh, that, yeah. that maximum of see one, do one, teach one, yeah. the idea that unless you can actually teach someone else to do a particular medical procedure, you probably don't understand it as well as you thought you did, is, is in some sense a, a celebration of uh, the craft of teaching. But do you, do you talk about these countries like Finland and Singapore that are routinely drawing teachers from the top third of the, uh, the test score distri distribution? How do, we, how do we move towards that? Okay, so two things about that. I think, um, I think we should be aiming for the kind of top third of academic achievers. That doesn't mean that every single person who becomes a teacher uh, will be in that top third, but there has, to be, there has to be kind of a reason that you're not. There has to be something really special about mm. you. Uh, um, so we should be aiming, in general, to attract people in that top third of academic achievement. Uh, and then we should continue to involve experienced teachers to, to keep them in the classroom, mentoring uh, um, less experienced teachers in a structured way. They, they are expected to do it informally, in their own time. People do it out of incredible generosity. but. We've had various programs, uh, um, leading teachers or highly experienced teachers, it varies a little bit from state to state, but basically paying our top achieving teachers to stay in the classroom and teach and mentor other teachers, instead of having to become a principal or move into the bureaucracy or move mm. out of teaching altogether to, uh, once they hit that sort of salary cap after a few years, uh, I think is another really important contribution we can make. And one of the things that we proposed before the last election that I'm still very attached to uh, is an evidence institute that, that makes it easier for people to apply um, quality tested approaches in the classroom as these evolve over time, but also to be part of doing the research of actually, like you, I always think the comparison with doctors is a really good one because if you're in a teaching hospital and you're being cared for by someone who's also a professor at the local university and has half a dozen students uh, under them, you statistically actually have a better survival rate because mm. you are more closely observed, there's more collaboration around your treatment, you're more likely to have access to cutting edge drugs and treatments. We, we need to give teachers the opportunity of formally continuing to be involved in research and, and teaching other teachers throughout their, throughout their professional lives as well. Yes, and the comparison with, uh, t between t teaching hospitals and the notion of teaching schools I find really interesting uh, because not only could you potentially improve the educational experience for new teachers who are then being more supervised in a more structured way, 
but it also involve, it avoids that kind of lottery where uh, parents sometimes get frustrated if their child is being taught by a, a teacher who's in their first year because like everyone else doing something for the first time, teachers in their first year will statistically not, not, not be as good. Uh, do you think there's ways of taking that teaching hospital model and, and setting up a range of, of teaching schools? We used to have demonstration schools, I think. Um, yes, absolutely there is. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and I could talk about this all night. I'm, I'm a bit worried I'm getting a bit into the... Okay, into the I'll, one, 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 last, one last educa education question, then I'll, uh, I'll move on. Um, what, would, what would have been the right role for universities uh, when COVID-19 hit? Well, the right role for both TAFE and university would be to give every person who's not working and who wants to upgrade their skills or education the opportunity to do it. Uh, it's pretty incredible that one in three young people uh, are not working or not working as many hours as they'd like and mm. we've made it harder and more expensive to get a university education at the same time and um, likewise TAFE uh, after years of neglect billions of dollars cut from TAFE is really feeling the um, really feeling the the burden of years of defunding and cuts there are quite a few free TAFE courses around states and territories now. Um, that's a good thing, but it has to come with proper resourcing for the institutions that are offering the courses, or we're just wasting people's times at time. And universities, I just find it absolutely gobsmacking that you would pick the middle of a recession as a time to double the cost of a university degree. So a four-year arts degree is now $58,000. So we're talking about how young people should get access to their, well we're not, the government, some government backbenchers are talking about how young people should get access to their superannuation to help them get a deposit for their home. How about not landing them with a $58,000 debt before they even think about uh, a home of their own if you really want to help them, if you really want to help them at that critical time of their lives. and. What kind of country thinks that studying, um, well, studying humanities, social work, the cost of being a social worker, becoming a psychologist, all of these things have gone up in price to dissuade people. The, the government is explicit about it, to dissuade people from studying these courses. I, vandalism. So then we'd in some sense be doing with universities now what we did with uh, high schools in the last recession, wouldn't we? Uh, where we saw that big increase in school, school completion rates accompanying the early 90s recession. We'd now see a commensurate increase in university atten attendance as the, as the youth labour market uh, was in its worst situation for a generation. But surely that's a good thing, right? And it's not just about warehousing people, it's not just keeping them busy, it's actually giving them the skills they need to do the jobs that we'll need doing as our economy emerges out of recession. We had skills shortages across a whole range of different trades and professions going into the recession. If you give people good information about where the skills gaps are likely to be, I think you can trust them to choose courses uh, that are in their, in, in their interests to study. Um, we know too that work is becoming increasingly complex. So when we were last in government, we set a target of 40% of people with, in that sort of early career stage having a bachelor degree or equivalent, because we know that 
jobs are increasingly complex. We should also, I think, be setting targets for uh, TAFE qualifications because um, the Australian Foundation for Young People um, research said that nine out of ten uh, jobs are going to require TAFE or university qualifications in coming years. Well, it's as good a time as any to train people up to, to do those jobs. What about working from home? I mean, the old, uh, the old adage used to be there's three problems from working from home. The bed, the TV and the fridge. Uh, and therefore that, oh, that it was never... We all, we all found the fridge a little bit of a problem during <laughs> lockdown, I think. Uh, and, and therefore that, that it, would, it would never work, that, uh, that really this was just going to be a fringe activity. But Stanford's Nicholas Bloom reckons that the share of working days worked from home will go from 5% in the US to, to maybe 20%. If that's true here as well, how does that change the, the world of work? Uh, and what other ramifications does it have for policy? I think this is really one of the most interesting features of COVID-19. And it fits squarely in that um, we thought we couldn't do it, but apparently we can. Mm. Uh, I think it... Um, I think we'll... Well, and not just mean lots of people think this, it's no particular genius insight, but I think the idea that uh, most people who can work from home will work some sort of hybrid where they spend a few days a week in the office and a few days a week uh, working from home, I think that will continue for some time because people have worked out it's actually just really nice not to battle the traffic for an hour each way every day or sit on the train for an hour each way every day. And uh, I, I think that's a good thing. Most businesses that moved largely or wholly to working from home that I've spoken to say they've had increased productivity. Uh, they've got certainly fewer sick days. They've got you know all sorts of um, positive uh, benefits and their staff report wanting to work from home. I think a lot of businesses will take the opportunity of reducing their uh, their office footprint, particularly if they've got expensive inner city real estate at the mm. moment. I, what I, I think there'll be quite a few older office buildings that will get basically cleaned out. It, all of the capital cities seem to still be building new commercial and retail space, but it's configured for the way people want to work now. I think a lot of um, a lot of businesses will move into those new buildings and I don't know what will happen to the older ones. Uh, and again, we need, we'll, we'll need to look at some of the big infrastructure projects that we've got planned because um, commuting patterns, I think, have changed. We don't know how significantly they've changed, but that, that really is something that we ought to look at um, and, and interrogate a little before assuming that things will just snap back to how they were at the beginning. It might be, for example, that it's more important to have people uh, moving around middle ring suburbs and outer suburbs than, than focusing on the sort of spokes of the wheel connecting the outer suburbs to the inner city um, or CBD as we have been with a lot of public transport and road projects in recent times. Um, I think the, the, the couple of the chapters in the book look at the issue of uh, gendered labour 
and um, Ray Cooper and Sarah Masseri look at the pink recession and and uh, um, they do write about who's doing more work at home and this is something that Annabelle Crabb looks at as well. The evidence seems to be that even when uh, mum and dad are working from home, women are men are doing more domestic labour than they were uh, when they're working from home, but women are doing much more domestic labour than, uh, than they were previously. And I, I think that's another area that uh, perhaps COVID-19 sort of opened our eyes to the fact that, well, if, if we needed reminding that there's this gender disparity in domestic labour, but it's been a sort of really, throwing that into pretty sharp relief, I think, for a lot of people. And that's, again, something that, I don't know, I, I'd certainly like to see some improvements in. Do you feel hopeful that this might uh, create jobs which are more flexible? That previously we might have had this idea that uh, high-paid jobs need to be five days in person. Now you might be able to do three days in person, two days at home that that might open up possibilities for people with caring opportunities or maybe also different personality types. You know, are we, are we going to see this as being the age of the introvert? Why do you ask, Andrew? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm an introvert in an extrovert's profession. Um, I, I, I want to be more optimistic in my answer, but the truth is, Andrew, I think like many things, this will suit people with a lot of bargaining power and people who, I mean, if you look at who was able to work from home most successfully, it was generally people, pretty high wages, quite a lot of autonomy at work already. Uh, they were able to shift to working from home pretty easily and they had a lot of support to do so. Mm. Uh, all the people that we called heroes during the pandemic, the you know shelf stackers and transport workers and delivery riders and cleaners and you know, they haven't they haven't achieved that any greater flexibility. In fact, perhaps the opposite, as their mm. skills mm. have been uh, more in demand. Uh, you know, during lockdown in particular. So, I wish I could say I wish I could say I think this is going to lead to a new blossoming of work life balance for you know blue collar and pink collar workers. I, I don't see that at the moment, sadly. So the flexibility you think will come initially for, for high wage workers and low wage workers will be stuck? I, yeah. think, I think it's that was already the case and this really has exacerbated that a, a lot. Presumably there's also the risk of uh, job losses for those uh, lower skilled workers who are servicing the urban core. The people who are oh, building sure. managers, taxi drivers, uh, baristas, uh, three-fifths of demand means, uh, mean, could mean significant job losses for them. Yeah, and I think, I mean, some of that will be job loss and some of it will be like, our city's recon reconfiguring. Mm. But, but I, don't, I don't know yet how permanent those changes will be because if there is a, a vaccine from sort of March or middle of next year, 
um, will will these habits of working from home more often increase flexibility and so on? Will they be embedded enough for people to hang on to them, or will we move back to mm. how things work? Anybody's guess. Climate is a big uh, theme in the book. You've already touched on it. Uh, Jenny Macklin calls for uh, uh, an uh, employment and emissions accord uh, in the same spirit of the early 80s accord. And Peter Garrett talks about uh, uh, the. this is... Um, well, let me quote. He's quoting from The Economist. Getting economies in medically-induced comas back on their feet is a circumstance tailor-made for investment in climate-friendly infrastructure that boosts growth and creates new jobs. Uh, there is a risk, though, isn't there, that uh, COVID distracts from climate rather than focusing on climate. How do we ensure a, a, a green recovery? Oh, well, just face reality. <laughs> I mean, seriously, um, it, uh, renewable energy is cheaper than new coal or gas, and we have an opportunity to use some of the money that we are investing in hard infrastructure to upgrade transmission lines, as uh, Anthony Albanese proposed in his mm. budget reply speech, but also to uh, to do other things like energy efficiency measures, um, to, uh, you know, there's, there's great opportunities to use some of the money that we are going to spend creating jobs, making sure that those jobs support uh, energy efficiency, uh, cleaner um, generation, uh, transmission of renewables and uh, like Roscano writes uh, the manufacturing jobs that can come with that. I think one of the really interesting things about um, Roscano's proposition on uh, the hydrogen giving us the pathway to become a clean energy superpower is thinking about the embedded carbon emissions in really polluting manufacturing processes like aluminium making, steel making, cement, um, uh, ammonia, uh, other, other chemical processes. And thinking about not just reducing embedded carbon in, in those sorts of um, carbon intense products, but thinking about what are the new markets for this? So we've got a new American administration, at least we hope we have, <laughs> I think we have. Um, Donald Trump seems to be the only person who doesn't think we have, but. We've got a new American administration that is not only determined to meet its own climate goals, but has been really explicit about the fact that they're going to encourage other nations not to squib it. We've got a, a European Union that's uh, very explicit about their uh, ambitions. Uh, we've got a free trade ag agreement in, in prospect with the UK. Uh, we've got the Glasgow conference coming up, there's a whole bunch of, well, so also China, zero net emissions by 2060, South Korea, Japan. Mm, mm. Uh, surely, um, if we can uh, get, uh, use our opportunities um, as a country with plenty of, plenty of sun, plenty of wind, plenty of space, to um, build renewable energy generation and very importantly, the storage and transmission that needs to go with it uh, and the firming. Um, and if we can use that to manufacture some of these otherwise quite highly polluting materials, doesn't that just give us a, 
a, an amazing market opportunity in a world that is is clearly changing. Uh, I think it's I think it's a real frustration that so many people, um, the kind of Matt Canavans of the world, want to pretend that we can choose to act on climate change, choose to act to protect our environment, or we can have well-paid jobs. Mm. We we can have both together. We need to track. We need to track a path that gives us both together. What's striking to me about Ross Garner's view is that it it takes you away from that sort of hair shirt politics of climate change towards a really optimistic vision in which Australia's comparative advantage in clean the production of clean energy suddenly becomes a, a real strength and a, and a source of pride. Yeah. Uh, I love that 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 optimism in, in the way in which Ross thinks about the world. And he's not just talking about the fact we've got lots of wind and lots of you know sun and all and lots of space, but also we've got lots of smarts. Mm. We've got I, the University of Technology, uh, sorry, uh, University of New South Wales is on my doorstep. It's not in my electorate, but it's just outside. We've got some of the most advanced solar research in the world. Mm. It's it, it's our it's our kind of natural environment, but also the the intellect and uh, innovation of our people that gives us the opportunity of being a world leader. Speaking about the world, uh, I mean the the sort of snapshot of how COVID has affected us is it's taken technology forward a decade and globalisation back a decade. Uh, do you worry that this is uh, in some sense a, a boon to, uh, to, to the xenophobes and the uh, closed Austra Australia people who would uh, like to see us put up the tariff walls, pull up the drawbridge to, uh, to immigrants and, uh, and asylum seekers, uh, say no to foreign investment? How do we those of us who believe in a, an, an engaged Australia maintain that, that approach to the world? I think that was, a, a, again, a tendency before COVID-19. And I, I suppose one of, the, one of the things I've found um, sort of positive about this experience is there's less of that than I thought. Mm. And in fact, uh, when you look at things like the global cooperation in the sequencing of the um, COVID-19 uh, um, virus and the um, global cooperation on finding vaccines and a very clear sort of message that um, if a country finds a vaccine or if a company finds a vaccine, there's a, a, a very explicit discussion about how that will be shared and produced and and um, and distributed globally I think that's actually been really good mm. I I'm curious um, in over the next few years to see whether the discussion about having to um, have more secure supply chains domestically morphs into uh, a, something more than that and becomes more protectionist. I think it, it, it has been true that we've discovered that we need to be able to manufacture vaccines here, we need to be able to manufacture personal protective equipment. There's a whole bunch of things that uh, it's good that we've got the domestic capacity to, to, um, to make. Uh, but 
but for the most part, I think the there's been a healthy um, a healthy focus on international collaboration and cooperation, and that's a real repudiation of what the prime minister was talking about just just a few months ago with negative globalism. I mean, it, you know, perhaps the World Health Organization got a few things wrong, but where would we be without them? Where would we be without the global alliance on um, you know vaccines or uh, the um, CEPI, uh, the the different organisations that are working through how we discover, manufacture and distribute uh, treatments and mm, mm. and um, and uh, vaccination. Yeah. yeah. Um, we've got uh, time for a couple of audience questions. If there's uh, there's questions that people people have, uh, while people are. Thinking about uh, about possible questions for Tanya, I want to ask you about the the process of writing the book. Where was the impetus from, and uh, uh, what was it that was unexpected about the uh, the book production process? Um, well, uh, the the impetus the impetus was just sitting at my table on a Saturday night, my dining table, and it was weird to be home on my own, and I was reading the newspaper and thinking. Um, this news is so grim it can't, can't be grim forever what comes next uh, I think it was probably after we read the Stuart McIntyre book actually Andrew and our people don't know this but Andrew and I belong to a book group together and um, I found that that story of full employment after the Second World War so uh, inspiring. I sort of, you know, knew it in vague terms, but Stuart McIntyre's book is such a great description of how it was conceived and how it was achieved. And I thought, well, what's our, what's our equivalent? How can we give people hope that mm. there's something better after everything that they're being asked to do now? Stay home, stay away from loved ones, um, lose their jobs, close their businesses what hope can we offer people and there was literally nothing unexpected about the writing process because uh, a friend of mine who's been a publisher for uh, 30 years um, wrote me this email saying these are all the pitfalls <laughs> of editing a book and she was right on every single one of them it was <laughs> uncanny how right she was but uh, she said um, you know Someone will wait till the very last minute and when you think you're going to have to replace their chapter with something else or leave it out just before you go to the publishers, they'll give you something. That was true, that happened. There was... Uh, anyway, she, she sent me a list of all the terrible things that people do to editors and she was 100% right. So I, I had fair <laughs> warning going in. Well, Tanya, today is the first day of summer, and as somebody who regards summer as basically the, the best season, I think like most Australians, you know, there's summer and then there's the nine months in which you're waiting for summer. Uh, so I was already in a good mood this morning, but uh, speaking with you for an hour uh, put, makes me feel even more optimistic. I think you epitomise the notion that opposition is not simply about throwing bombs and saying no, it's also about crafting a vision. 
Uh, and it's not simply about trying to uh, sneak and slip into government. Uh, it's about being ambitious and energetic. Uh, and I feel as though this book encapsulates so much of what I think about uh, is, is the, the plebiscite style of politics. Uh, that notion that in order to succeed in politics, uh, you can actually be nice. Uh, you can actually be serious about ideas. Don't tell people. You can be serious about books, and you are somebody who you know. We've only talked non-fiction today, but I know you're as uh, you're as serious about your love of fiction as uh, as you are of your love of non-fiction. And so, I think I speak for uh, all of those in the room and online, and saying thank you very much for a really stimulating conversation tonight. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you.